edition of the Lamp and Liquor Podcast for Society's Second that No Nothings Are Right About Us. And Michael ditched us. He said he gave his apologies. Michael was supposed to be here, uh, but he gave his apologies to Western civilization, which I'm not quite sure how that works, um, <laughs> considering we're also interviewing a, a Byzantine Catholic priest today. So, uh, Michael, that's a major faux pas on your part. Oh, but, uh, I think I think everything's all right with him. I'm joined, as always, uh, by the Dogati Peter, who's chilling out here. He's ready to talk. Um, and we are joined, of course, uh, to finish off our series, Lessons in liturgical literacy with uh, Father Richard Armstrong, who is a Byzantine uh, Catholic priest. Um, I'm not sure what uh, diocese you might discuss mm-hmm. or just describe yourself as. What would you say, Father? Uh, was it being eparchy or what exactly? How would you describe yourself? Yeah, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a presbyter of the uh, Ukrainian Catholic eparchy of St. Josephat in Parma, Ohio. Okay. Oh. And there's a there's a Ruthenian um, eparchy there too. Uh, they're known as the eparchy of Parma. We're the eparchy of Saint Joseph at, and we both are in Parma, Ohio. Okay. That's where our cathedrals are and our bishops are. Is interesting. Is there like a little um, rivalry there going on between the Ruthenians and the Ukrainians, slightly? Or sometimes, sometimes. <laughs> Usually, the bishops themselves get along pretty well. But when you get below the bishops and the priests and the laity getting involved, you know, they mix, they can mix it up a little bit. <laughs> okay. That makes sense. Uh, that makes sense. So I guess, Father, like, tell us a little bit about, about yourself. Obviously, you're a Byzantine Catholic priest. Um, mm-hmm. I know from being at St. Joseph and St. Therese that you're also by ritual, so you say some of sure. the uh, Latin rite uh, masses as well. Just tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about yourself, like um, – how long have you been a priest for and like kind of what's your vocation story? Sure. I was ordained um, as a Ukrainian Catholic priest in 2009 for, um, for the eparchy of St. Josephette. Even though the eparchy is seated in Ohio, uh, Tennessee is part of its territory. Actually, the eparchy itself, uh, an eparchy is just our way of saying diocese. Mm-hmm. Our eparchy goes all the way down uh, to Florida uh, along parts of the, the East Coast. Um, just some of my, my own background. Uh, my grandmother on my father's side is Ukrainian. Mm-hmm. And her family was from Western Ukraine. Western Ukraine tends to be uh, Ukrainian Catholic, or what they call over there Greek Catholic. Mm-hmm. Greek Catholic and Byzantine Catholic are uh, synonymous. Okay. Just they say Greek Catholic over there. We often say Byzantine Catholic here uh, in the United States. 
Mm-hmm. Well, when she was marrying my grandfather, my grandfather was a um, uh, a Baptist from Arkansas. Oh, really? Yeah. Imagine this. Oh, yeah. He was in. The, he was in the military, and they they met at some port. Uh, and when they were getting ready to get married, he decided to become Catholic. But the kind of Catholic that he would become would be a Ukrainian Catholic. So imagine that a Byzantine, uh, excuse me, uh, a Baptist man from Arkansas <laughs> becoming a Ukrainian Catholic in New York City. Oh my wow. God! And that's that's where they were married, uh, St. George's in uh, New York City, in what's known as the uh, Ukrainian Village up there. Okay, oh, cool. So the children that they had uh, were all Ukrainian Catholic. Of course, my grandfather's last name was Armstrong. Mm-hmm. My grandmother's last name was Wolanski, so she took on the name Armstrong. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. So my dad and his brother and his two sisters uh, were raised as Ukrainian Catholics. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, when my father got married, uh, he married uh, my mother, but she was she was Protestant, but she became Catholic. She decided to become Latin Rite Catholic. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because they were in Virginia, and there was not a lot of, uh, you know, Byzantine Rite churches in Virginia. Okay, so it wasn't like she looked at the two Lents and was like, Latin Lent is easier. <laughs> no, no, no. Go in that route. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, my father actually bought her a rosary when she became Catholic. But they were married in a Ukrainian Catholic church at uh, the Shrine of uh, the Holy Family in D.C., which is a Ukrainian Catholic uh, shrine. Yeah. So they were married in the Ukrainian Catholic Church. Is that the one that's right next to the JP2 shrine in D.C.? Yeah, it's uh, right there at uh, right, Catholic yeah. University. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've okay. been there. It's beautiful there. I love mm-hmm. it. Yeah. So uh, I have one sister, and according to the Ukrainian Catholic uh, particular law that the church followed, in the case of a mixed marriage, mixed marriage between a uh, Ukrainian Catholic and a Latin Rite Catholic, uh, the female children follow the right of the mother, and the male children follow the right of the father. Interesting. So, yeah, it's, it was a very interesting huh. law. Uh, it no longer exists, but I am Byzantine, mm-hmm. and my sister is actually Latin right. Huh. So, in that sense, we grew up with both, uh, with both rights. It's almost like being... Um, uh, bilingual, but yeah. it, we're talking about ritual churches. So I was fluent. I'm fluent in actually both both rites because of that, because of my father and and, and my mother. So is that rule still? That rule still isn't in effect though anymore. No, no. A- Ultimately, it kept families divided. I see. Is I what it did. So, and in, in, in theory, it sounded good. It sounded like it was protecting each, you know, ritual church, but it just perpetuated this, um, this, uh, you know, difference in ritual churches in the family. Mm-hmm. So, I see. Ended up not being a particularly uh, well thought out law, but I see. It was kind of a stopgap measure at the time. So it kind of made sense, like at least the impulse was. It did, yeah. One. Okay. Does it just now follow the father's right of what he's in? or? Uh, actually, now it's left. They can decide either one. But if they can't, 
have a consensus on one, then they follow the right of the father. Oh, I see. Okay, cool. Because we have a mutual friend, uh, mm-hmm. Tim, Tim and Felicity. Felicity oh, yeah. is Ukrainian Catholic. Tim's mm-hmm. Latin right. Um, and they just recently got married and they're going to have kids. So I was like, oh, I guess they're going to have to figure something out here. It's not just going right. to be set up how it's like. Yeah, when a couple gets married, yeah. uh, either spouse at the time of marriage can choose to follow the right of their of their spouse. Interesting. Oh. Yeah, so it's actually, that's the easiest way to change ritual churches is to get married. Oh, All you have right. to do is to declare it. Like my wife declared when we got married that uh, she would be Ukrainian Catholic. Interesting. And all you have to do is make that declaration. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, Tim, if you're listening, just stand here. haven't already just kidding. <laughs> just, just kidding. Because I know they got married it in a ukrainian liturgy right like that was yeah. like the, yeah they were yeah. married in a ukrainian liturgy but it was in a latin rite um church at christendom that's right yeah it was, so, it was the, the, yeah, they didn't have, yeah, yeah they didn't yeah. have an iconostas or anything but they still had set up some icons and whatnot but sure. it was still yeah. cool because it's like oh i guess this is a melding of both worlds and it, it kind was of works yeah together. yeah like literally so um so yeah liturgy being ukrainian but like the actual physical structure being latin um so that was good that was good. Yeah, it was interesting. Um, so what um, brought you to becoming a priest, Father? Well, when I was in college, I went to a, a military college. I went to uh, Virginia Military Institute. Mm-hmm. That's where I did my undergraduate. And my goal was ultimately to be a soldier. Mm-hmm. And then as I got to my junior year, I started uh, contemplating the priesthood. Now, when I was growing up, ever since I was about 12 years old, I worked at the local Latin Rite Parish cleaning the church, uh, taking care of the lawn and the garden. I worked very closely with the, um, the Latin Rite priests at that parish. And I, I got to know them very well, because at that time, my family and I were, were going to a Latin Rite parish, because there were no Eastern parishes uh, where, where I grew up, not even, not even close. So we went to a Latin Rite parish, and the priest one day asked me when I was in eighth grade if I wanted a job. Hmm. You know, just, you know, working at the parish, doing odd things. And uh, I said, yeah. So he got me very much involved and my family very much involved in the life of the parish. So at that time, the faith really, um, really grabbed me mm-hmm. at that time. Uh, and when I went off to college, the faith was still very, very important to me. But going into the military was my was my goal. That was my priority. But I, I began to rethink some things my, my junior year. And then my, my senior year, um, you know, I was left with, you know, a decision. Either serve my country mm-hmm. or serve God. Mm-hmm. I mean, both, it had to be, for me, it had to be service. It was one or the other. And I said, well, if I choose to serve uh, my nation, and it was really meant for me to serve God first, uh, then that's going to be a decision I regret mm-hmm. <laughs> eventually. Yeah. So what I ended up doing is I uh, turned down a commission in the army and decided to go to, to seminary. Mm-hmm. And I, I did that for a while. And then I started thinking, well, maybe this is not for me. I wasn't married yet. See, in the... And the Byzantine, and this is this sounds comical in one sense, mm-hmm. but um, in the Byzantine rite, seminarians, one of their priorities is to get married before they get ordained. 
<laughs> I, I've, I've heard of this before. I have a classmate of mine who's actually in seminary in the Ukraine right now. So women yeah. will hang around seminaries. <laughs> and, and, and the seminarians, they're, they're out seriously dating because they have to find a wife before they're ordained a deacon. They got to hurry that up. <laughs> oh, they got to hurry that up. Oh, wow. So it's before the diaconate yeah. Um, yeah. ordination. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's a um, um, Eastern Rite seminaries are a very in, interesting place. Very very different than a Latin Rite seminary. <laughs> I'm sure. Very different. Very different. <laughs> different vibe. <laughs> so, a real quick question on that. Um, I've heard that if you were to become a bishop in the Byzantine Rite, you can't be married. Is that accurate, or is that not that's accurate? accurate. Yeah, that's that correct. Accurate. Okay. Yeah, traditionally. Um, our bishops are taken from the monastics. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. and, and the, in the Byzantine, um, in the Byzantine tradition, um, the monasticism is the is the single path. Sure, for yeah. uh, for not only clergy but for laity too. So there's not a difference in kind. There's only a difference in degree. How much you follow the monastic path. Gotcha. So ideally, our bishops are taken from the monastics. I see. Uh, because they're schooled in the in the in the fullness of our tradition. I see. That's pretty cool. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. That's cool because that, then then it doesn't seem like you're looking at that one seminarian who's not dating and you're like, what are you looking for a promotion or something? Like, what, what, what have you got your eyes on? <laughs> That's what I've heard before. It's interesting where it's like pulling from the monastic uh, tradition into, does the, is there any conflict? I guess to go off on a little side tangent, like, <laughs> is there any like, I don't want to say conflict, but like you have like, you know, your families, your parishes, you know, your your regular, you know, priests who are serving those more family communities and then you uh, pull someone who's from the monastic setting is there any bit of a jarring because i guess maybe in the latin right you're like you kind of see the two things as a little bit distinct right the, the monks are over there and mm-hmm. they kind of have their own thing going on and sure. you, know, you have the secular clergy sorry i'm still stuck in the 13th century because that's all it was doing today um <laughs> you still you, know, you have your secular clergy and that's where you pull from right for your <laughs> for your bishops is there any weird like I don't want to say culture clash, but like you're pulling from one side into the other to start running the show at the top. Some, of the sometimes or? there is when it comes to, to liturgy because the monastics want to do liturgy in its fullness mm-hmm. and liturgy in its fullness for a monastic is all day long, <laughs> pretty close to it, pretty close oh. to it. And that's really what they desire. That's what they want. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you get, when you start uh, doing liturgy uh, for the laity, for the lay faithful, mm-hmm. they still want that monastic element, but realistically, they cannot pray an all-night vigil. Right. Mm-hmm. They just can't do it. Yeah. So sometimes there's a little bit of tension between uh, the the bishop that wants to do it, and he wants his priests who are married to do it, but these priests who are married have families, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we'll do the we'll keep the integrity of the services, mm-hmm. but instead of doing um, twenty five psalms during the service, we'll do maybe ten psalms because mm, right. we we got to get home before midnight. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Oh yeah. So sometimes there's some tension, but uh, at least today most bishops are pretty understanding about 
uh, the dynamics of family life and the lay faithful, um, that they're living in the world and they have responsibilities with jobs and, and finances and things like that. Okay. So, so uh, in, in practicality, it's really not that bad. Okay. You hear, you're, sometimes you hear about things that there's just a real disconnect between uh, the bishop and, and the people, but it's, it's, it's not that often anymore. This is something, this is really interesting. So if, um, for, please forgive my ignorance on this. Um, so the, so the bishops are pulled out of kind of the more monastic tradition in my understanding of the West, the, the monastic traditions were within different, um, uh, orders, mm-hmm. right. Um, do those orders exist within the Byzantine, uh, right. Or is it a little bit more kind of more integrated with the diocese or the ep- eparchy? Uh, traditionally, uh, we don't really have orders. Now, mm-hmm. during the 20th century, there was some development of orders because um, the Byzantine Rite wanted to imitate some of the Latin Rite practices. Mm-hmm. So you ended up getting some um, uh, religious orders. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, but traditionally, we don't have really religious orders. Now, we have... Um, you know, the desert fathers, the desert monastics. Sure. Uh, when St. Basil the Great came along, he changed the dynamic a little bit. Mm-hmm. There was more of a, of a communal aspect, more of a, uh, we have an obligation to the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and some of that took on uh, more flesh. And, and, and really the orders that developed were based on St. Basil. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but, for the most part, they're all the they're all the same, mm-hmm. right? They're all the same, but you you know again in the past two centuries under the influence of the Latin Church, um, there are different um, philosophies that different groups had. Like in the Ukraine, uh, the Studites were very traditional monastic order. Mm-hmm. We think of Orthodox monks today. You know, with the real long beards and, mm-hmm. you know, praying all day. That was the Studites. Okay. Uh, and that's that's what our current patriarch, he was, he was a Studite. Uh, and if you're familiar with the um, the bishop in Chicago, the Ukrainian Catholic bishop in Chicago, mm-hmm. he's got a, a, a Bishop Benedict is his name. Mm-hmm. He's got this real long beard. He's, he's, he's fully monastic. I mean, he brought mm-hmm. monasticism with him into the, uh, cool. into that eparchy there. But then again, you have some other bishops that are more inclined to, Hey, you know, we, again, you know, what are, what are we doing for the communities around us? I see. Right. Traditionally communities, people in the community would come to the monastery. The monasteries were always open to the lay faithful mm-hmm. yep. uh, and they would come there. Um, but in the past couple of centuries, some of that has changed. Now, some of the monastics will go out into the into the lay communities to serve. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Oh, that's very cool. Um, so, I want uh, to kind of take, pull it back to the liturgical side of things. Um, what role did the uh, Byzantine liturgy play in your vocation? Like, uh, it, it sounded like it was kind of a part of your entire childhood in to a large extent right um for us liturgy is everything yeah. liturgy is not not only what we do it's it's who we are mm-hmm. you know and if i can make a probably not so much a probably not a really fair comparison to the latin right okay. uh no, liturgy is <laughs> liturgy is one of the things you do 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's one of the, you also do outreach, you do education. Uh-huh. Um, uh, you do all these other, other things in addition to liturgy. Internet trolling. Internet trolling. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's like one of many things that you do. Yeah. From our perspective, uh, liturgy is, is who we are. Mm-hmm. Everything flows um, from, from liturgy. And for us, it's not only the divine liturgy. We have many other liturgical services that really feed our spirituality. And most of those liturgical services can just as easily be done by lay people. There's a couple things that change, uh, but for the most part in their fullness, they can be done just as easily by a lay person. Mm-hmm. Um, so liturgical formation for us, you know, one of the things I like to tell people is um, the liturgy is our catechism. Hmm. The liturgy is our catechism. Hmm. Um, and that's true for the Latin rite as well. We know, you know, lex orande, lex credende. Mm-hmm. You know, the law uh, uh, of belief is the law of prayer, or law of prayer is the law of, of belief. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so if you want to know what it is we believe, then you look at, you know, how we pray. Yeah. Our prayers contain our belief. So in that sense, rather than handing somebody a catechism in our tradition, we say, you got to go to the liturgy. <laughs> so a liturgy, liturgy in itself is, is formative for us. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, you know, if you want somebody to really be formed in our tradition, you submit them to the liturgy. Hmm. They, they submit themselves to liturgy. We just say, this is what you have to do. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is present. You know, we, we in the Byzantine tradition and in the Eastern, Eastern churches, the role of the Holy Spirit is very, very important. Um, um, so we actively um, know that the Holy Spirit is forming us in our prayers, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. People can be here to kind of provide some guideposts, you know, like the clergy uh, and some of the um, the elders, you know, if you're kind of going off. But we have a real sense of just simply uh, committing ourselves to that service as it's been handed down to us through tradition. And it's proven to work yeah. because the living God is is doing this. In, in this in this service in these liturgies yep. um, it, it sometimes can sound anti-intellectual mm-hmm. um, but in in reality um, it's 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 a full formation it's it's intellect it's it's body it's soul it's spirit uh, it's heart it's all of that mm-hmm. you know I really appreciate everything you're saying about this because it, I feel like in my formation this is this mystical almost spiritual element has been missing in my latin upbringing mm-hmm. i feel sure. like a lot of it's been very academic mm-hmm. and a lot of prayer as well like you know I, obviously but i've always really appreciated from the outside looking at the um, byzantine rite for that element of liturgy and for that mystical transcendence that mm-hmm. seems to be present um and seems to be understood by everybody you know mm-hmm. like yeah yeah and so that's, yeah, I really do appreciate that a lot. That's really cool. Oh, I guess like following up on what you were talking about tradition um, and the living God and kind of like that stretching on and that important um, 
uh, connection because I think it's came out in a couple of the other lessons in liturgical literacy where we've talked about the importance of like we see ourselves as united church, right? Obviously, like um, in a horizontal sense, right? With mm-hmm. the church militant, sure. you know, like church, you know, purgation, church, and mm-hmm. you know, having stuff like that. But like, there's also the sense of the church in a vertical sense of stretching out, you know, throughout the ages mm-hmm. um, with the tradition, um, especially we might say within the Latin, right? Um, but what seems to me, and this is not to go like on any sort of like, you know, traditionalist screed, mm-hmm. um, but there also seems to be a sense where among some Catholics, or like, me, I should say some Latin Catholics, that there's a sense of like, oh, that's old fashioned, that's yeah. dumb, we should get rid right. of that, like incense, like ah, it gives me a headache or something like that, right? Um, and, and so this isn't really like to say that liturgy can't change, obviously, or it can't evolve and, and grow with the time because that does happen, right? Like sure, sometimes, sure, when, yeah, yeah, yeah. sometimes when people are like the Tridentine rite is exactly how it was, like yeah, yeah, just yeah. like no, no, no. There's there's some differences here. I've, <laughs> I've seen some differences, but mm-hmm. I would still take the Tridentine mass as more similar to the medieval mass than it is to whatever. But sure, but like um. I forget where I was exactly going with that, but like, has there been a, ever been a push within the Byzantine tradition of like, oh, we need to update these things or these these things are old and we need to kind of get rid of them? Not necessarily in the sense of like liturgy doesn't evolve ever, right? Mm-hmm. Or change, but like, no, that's old and that's decrepit and that doesn't make any sense. Let's get rid of that stuff. Like, has there been any sense within the um, Eastern tradition of that happening? Or has that just kind of been something that you guys haven't had to really worry about at all, period? Um, that's not really something that we, we do. Now, in the Russian church, I think it was in the 19th century, um, there were some reforms that, that came about that had to do with how you hold your fingers when you make the sign of the cross and things oh, like that. I heard about this. There was like a, like yeah, a there's like a war over there. Over yeah, the old yeah. believers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it caused quite an uproar. I mean, to a Western mind, it's like, it seems so trivial, uh-huh. you know, uh, but, you know, wars happened over these things. Mm-hmm. Um, now, for us, we will allow quite a bit of uh, differences between traditions. Mm-hmm. The basic uh, format always remains the same, but there's little things within the tradition uh, that you'll that you'll see. To an outsider, it's hard to notice, mm-hmm. uh, but to, to Byzantines, if you go to a Melkite church uh, versus a Ukrainian church. Uh, you're going to notice several several differences, mm-hmm. but they're they're more tradition with a little t, mm-hmm. if anything, um, and we kind of expect that. We expect that different cultures will worship a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, that's how that's how we maintain. Actually, that's how we maintain unity in the Eastern churches is by allowing a certain amount of diversity mm-hmm. because culturally people are different. You know, when the apostles went off, went out to, to different cultures, um, they enculturated the faith into that culture. You know, what was compatible with it, they kept and things that were incompatible had to go obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, there were, there were things that could, could be maintained. Mm-hmm. So I, as a Ukrainian Catholic, I would expect when I go to a, a Melkite church, that things are going to be a, a little bit different, mm-hmm. and and that's okay. But the substance is still going to be the liturgy of Saint John Chrysostom. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, they may they right. might do uh, a procession a little bit differently than we do. 
they use uh, the Melkites use uh, unleavened bread. We use leavened bread, but for us, that's not a that's not a game changer. Yeah, you know? right. That's not a, a reason for for schism or or anything like that. That's that's to be expected. Right. So. So, from, from ahead, my understanding, you know, in the in the Latin rite, uh, unity is is preserved by uniformity. Mm, mm-hmm. You know, how how do we express our unity? We express our unity uh, through uniformity. We all stand at the same time. We kneel at the same time. Mm-hmm. We make the sign of the cross at the same time. We say the same things. You know, at the same time, we use the same you know liturgical language. At least prior to Vatican II, you know, with with Latin. Mm-hmm. Right. At least, at least in most places. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that the uniformity is really how they express that unity. We are just kind of the opposite. Hmm. We maintain our unity by allowing plurality. I see within within certain parameters. Mm-hmm. Right. So I guess then that uh, that kind of leads into the next part of like how does the ecclesiology of the Eastern Catholic churches uh, work precisely because you have all these different, um, you have all these different rites. I believe there are different Melkite rite is different than the Ukrainian rite, et cetera. Um, how does the ecclesiological structure work? Like how, I guess I want to say like necessarily the power structure, uh, because mm-hmm. that sounds like I'm going a little postmodern. Um, mm-hmm. But like, how does it work with the structure between the patriarchs, the different autocephalous sees? Like, how mm-hmm. do how do these things form, and how do they how have they been um, developed? I guess you might say. And how then yeah. obviously is the connection uh, with the papacy all mm-hmm. work out together? Yeah, uh, strictly speaking, we don't really have autocephalous churches. Okay, I mean that's kind of a, an orthodox thing. But as Ukrainian Catholics, we we maintain that connection to uh, the Pope of Rome. We maintain that connection to uh, uh, the Bishop of Rome. Uh, but we do have patriarchs. We do have patriarchic church- churches. And the patriarch is the head and father of our church. Mm-hmm. He just happens to be in communion with the Bishop of Rome. Right. And right. so, you know, our, when we first, our um, initial inclination is not to look at what Pope Francis is saying and what he's doing. Mm-hmm. He's, not, he's not the first person we go to. The first person we go to is our own bishop, then our metropolitan, and then our patriarch. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Uh, so I, I, what I see in a lot of Latin Rite Catholics, it's, it's not so much what their local bishop is saying or doing. They want to know what the Pope is saying and what the Pope is doing. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I... The only thing that I've seen different to that are with the historical metropolitan sees of mm-hmm. Europe. Okay. I, I, the only thing that I've like Milan, you know, Paris, some of the, a lot of the German sees, mm-hmm. they seem to be very independently minded. I think Thomas was talking about this recently with me that especially in Germany where mm-hmm. the bishops are used like their predecessors were princes yeah they're yeah, still yeah, many of them are still referred to as the prince bishops and yeah, yeah they're yeah, really yeah. getting all up in the yeah. fantasies business right now yeah like, they, they're like <laughs> yeah so I, I think that that would be but no you are correct though obviously that you know the latin like the pope is the he is and is supposed to be kind of like the the buck stop, stops with him mm-hmm. um now so this was the question i had is it possible or is it even like would it even be accepted for a 
Byzantine right patriarch to be elected to the papacy as to become the Bishop of Rome? Is that something that's even possible? Is it a possibility? Yes, I believe it is a possibility. Sure. And actually, there was some uh, talk that my own patriarch, uh, Sviatoslav, which he's a younger guy, mm -hmm. he's, I think, maybe not even 50 years old yet, or maybe he's about 50 years old, but he's the patriarch of the largest Eastern Catholic Church. He's very articulate. He was educated in Rome, very mm -hmm. intelligent man. Um, he's seen as, as a possibility of, of, of being um, the Roman oh, pontiff. Cool. I would be. That'd be, that'd be really yeah. cool. Yeah. And uh, he personally knows Pope Francis. I don't think he always agrees with Pope Francis. Mm -hmm. um, but um, I, I, think it, I think it is a possibility, though. Interesting. I, that would be interesting, especially because Pope Francis's position of he, he seems to really want to um, heal the schism between the East and the West. He mm -hmm. At least he makes a lot of very public gestures to try and work mm -hmm. on that. So that would be interesting for the Roman church to elect an Eastern Rite patriarch to the Roman pont pontificate to try and yeah. know, get that, get those lungs breathing together. Again. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, would, would that actually necessarily, this is kind of another question kind of leaning into it. Like, would that, if that situation, which Peter outlined did occur, mm -hmm. um, would that assist in the chance of reconciliation between Rome and the Orthodox churches or, uh, or would it just not? It would, would would it really not do anything? I guess I'm kind of wondering where, uh, how were the Eastern Catholic churches seen within the structure of like how do the Orthodox view them? You know how do you know like that kind of how does that all kind of work together? I, I think um, if that were to happen, it would actually uh, hurt relations oh, between the churches. Okay. It would actually make it much much worse. Oh dear. And this is probably why you know. It probably would not happen. Okay. Because um, and I'm thinking primarily about the Russian Orthodox Church. They're mm -hmm. the largest of the Orthodox churches. Mm -hmm. And uh, and they like to, you know, uh, tell people that too. Right. <laughs> we're the largest, we're the most powerful, we'll do whatever we want. Mm -hmm. um, whatever the Russian government tells us. Yes. <laughs> uh, but they see us as traitors. Okay. In, in their eyes, I'm a traitor. I take what's important to them, their tradition. I take their liturgies and I run it through the muddied waters of Rome. Hmm. They despise what I do. Gotcha. Interesting. Now, they would much rather uh, deal with a Latin Rite Catholic than with a traitor. Interesting. Whoa. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because I was always like in the back of my head wondering, like, I wonder if I wonder if Father Richard knows, you know, like the new new pastor at St. Anne's in Oak Ridge or something. And then I was like, probably not. <laughs> well, like, you know, yeah. sometimes we will. We, we'll, I, I don't know him. I knew Father Stephen fairly well okay, yeah. before that. Mm -hmm. And I've met and talked with Father Job from St. Notarios in Lenore City. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, we, we, we keep our distance from one another. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, it, 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 it's kind of sad. Yeah, you know, and it's kind of hard to say that, but that—that's really uh, how it is. And you'll—you'll you'll see Russian diplomats, um, uh, um, their bishops. They—they go to Rome all the time and have meetings with the with the Pope of Rome, mm -hmm. with right. Pope Francis. Mm -hmm. uh, but they won't do that with our patriarchs. Mm. 
Not not gotcha. at all. Gotcha. And um, the patriarch from Russia and Pope Francis went to uh, what it was Cuba to sign something, right? Um, uh, our patriarch was not invited. <laughs> uh, he wasn't invited to be a part of it because it wouldn't have happened had he if he were there. So is this? So are these overtures that Rome is making to the Orthodox? Is it seen as a little bit of a betrayal by the East, by the Byzantine right? Or did it, I mean, am I reading too much into it? Or? No, no, no. There's some of that there. Okay, there is. We see some of it as as a betrayal. Okay, uh, we see some of what uh, Francis now publicly our patriarch and our bishops. We'll, we'll say the right thing. Our mm -hmm. communion with the Pope of Rome is very important to us. Uh, we will maintain it at any cost. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you talk to them on one-on-one, -on -one, mm -hmm. um, you, you, you begin to get a greater sense of the pain. Mm. Okay. Wow. Uh, right. Such so as like the example of when uh, Pope Francis gave the relics of St. Peter uh, to the Patriarch of Constantinople, Barth—I forget what his name was. Bartholomew. Bartholomew. Yeah, yeah. There's because that was a big deal of like, oh my yeah. gosh, like what'd you like, what'd you do? And, 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 and I'm talking primarily that. about the Russians. Mm -hmm. The Patriarch oh, okay. uh, uh, Bartholomew. We tend to get along a little bit better with him. He mm -hmm. was actually educated in Rome. Okay. He kind of knows how the Roman system, how it works, and all that. Right. Um, so he's been. Uh, he's kind of in a weak position to begin with. That's true. Uh, yeah, and he doesn't game. get along with the, the Russians. <laughs> yeah, that's so. true. That's true. Any any enemy of the Russians is a friend of ours, you know. As a, as <laughs> so, I'm so, sorry, I'm not trying to get polemical there. Okay. Well, so it's interesting. Then, is there the sense that, like, if there were to be reconciliation, it would be this weird um, kind of isolation? of the Russian church of like going after these other, not smaller uh, Orthodox sees, but more like, you know, the Serbians or the Greeks or it's, it's going to begin with one church at a time. Interesting. It'll be one church at a time where we reestablish communion. It's like the, um, the Assyrian church of the East, mm -hmm. which was the, the first to, to break off that didn't accept the uh, uh, council of, uh, of Ephesus. They were right. the first ones to break off. Um, the Catholic counterpart to that is the Chaldeans. Mm -hmm. Now, the Chaldeans and the Assyrians actually have an agreement where they can partake of sacraments in one another's churches. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so it's going to be things like that, like one church at a time, where communion, uh, full communion will be reestablished. It's not going to be a wholesale thing yeah, right. because the Serbians are not going to agree with the, the, the Greeks. The Greeks are not going to agree with the Russians. Mm -hmm. um, it's, that's just how, that's just how it, how it works. Right. A lot of times they're fighting with themselves. The Catholics don't even have to get involved. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the history of the Eastern churches have been in and out of schism with one another. Yeah. Right. You know, one patriarch, ticks off another patriarch, he re removes them from the diptychs, you know, the prayers, mm -hmm. and says, okay, we're, we're out of schism. You know, we're in schism now. And then 100 years later, they're back in, in union, and then they're out of schism again because somebody ticks off somebody, you know. So uh, okay. that's, I, I the, heard, that's the sad history of the Eastern churches. I, I heard I heard somebody, um, it was a, a convert from, I forget which Orthodox church, um, but he was talking about, I was saying, it's, it's a lot like being part of the NFL, 
um, where like you all like football together, <laughs> but you're all part of your own. Like I'm a Patriots fan or I'm a Giants fan or I'm a Packers yeah. fan or I'm this or I'm that. And it's like, you don't necessarily like each other, but you all like football together. <laughs> that's okay. that, that speaks the truth. It surely does. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I wasn't sure if there was some truth to that analogy or not, or if that. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, um, we could jump into, um, discussion about the liturgy itself. Cause this is lessons in liturgical okay. liturgy, ostensibly. Uh, mm-hmm. Um, so I guess like, like what is the Byzantine rite uh, per se? I mean, we talked about it a little bit and like in a more general practical question, because there was a pedagogic impulse to this series. Like how would you like, like if there's a Latin rite person who's never been to a Byzantine liturgy before, right? They're just kind of mm-hmm. your typical clueless Latin. Like what would you tell them to like prepare for in order to come to divine liturgy? Like what mm-hmm. would you, like if they have the kind of a basic knowledge, they've gone to mass, you know, pretty much, you know, every Sunday, let's make them a good Catholic. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they, they know the Latin rite fairly well, right? Mm-hmm. Like how would you prepare them? All right, we're going into divine liturgy. What would you, what would you like, how would you prepare them for that? Usually I'm not too interested in preparing them for it. There's really just too much. Now you can, provide some broad strokes, some outlines Mm -hmm. of what to expect. There's going to be lots of incense. We're going to uh, chant everything. Uh, We stand for most of the time, if not all of the time. Uh, There's going to be a couple processions in there. Just to give them a little bit of idea what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Right. But at that time... It sounds kind of bizarre, but they don't have a right to the fullness yet. Mm. They don't have a. They're almost. I I, I wouldn't call them a catechumen. You know, in the in the um, in the olden days, you know, when a a catechumen attended a mass, they were dismissed before the liturgy of the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were dismissed before the 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 most sacred part of the liturgy. Why? Uh, They were not able to offer sacrifice. You have to be baptized in order to offer offer sacrifice. And there was something that had to be protected about that, too. There was a privileged encounter with God uh, that you were not ready for yet. Mm-hmm. And to submit them to that is actually uh, uh, would be disrespectful to God in, in, in one respect. Mm-hmm. And it would be uh, uh, um, um, it would dishonor the person. Mm-hmm. Because they're they're being put into something that they're not ready for yet. Mm-hmm. So in terms of, of us, it's almost like a uh, it's almost like a procession. You go further and further and further into it, and the only way you can do that is by immersing yourself in it. Mm-hmm. When people come to to visit Divine Liturgy, I say don't don't worry about following along in a book. Don't even pick up a book. Don't try to try to uh, figure out what you're supposed to be doing at any given time. Yeah, as soon as you walk in, we're going to know you're not Byzantine. Yeah, <laughs> and that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. We don't we don't expect you to be right. We don't expect you to know how to do everything. Just to be present to mm-hmm. the action to, to what's actually hap- happening. You know, liturgy is not ultimately about God. Liturgy is of God mm-hmm. for us. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's not so much filling up here, you know, what am I going to expect? What is it I need to do? God is doing the work. God is doing the action. And we're participating in that work. Mm-hmm. So in order to do that, we submit ourselves to that 
to that great mystery. Mm-hmm. And the only way you can do that is by uh, gradually entering into that mystery. Mm. Um, otherwise, you know, we we get into the habit of thinking that we can uh, expect certain things, that we can control certain things, mm-hmm. uh, and we really can't. We really can't do that with something that God is doing. Mm-hmm. We can only be drawn into it. Mm-hmm. We can only be pulled into it. And that takes time. Interesting. And that takes time. So in your in what you're saying, it sounds like, is that it almost becomes something of a works-based system, I guess. Like in, in the worst sense of like when Protestants accuse Catholics of like, oh, you just, you know, <clears throat> want to work your way in, into heaven, right? Like do good works and keep a tally of all the good things you've done. And then boom, God's like, all right, cool. You've, you've hit the quota for good works, like welcome in. Um, but that there is this certain just immersion to it where you just allow yourself to be, you know, you know, kind of like a part of that whole thing without fully understanding and allowing yeah, God to work with it. It's being pulled into the life of God. Mm-hmm. You know, ultimately, every the purpose of everything in our tradition is is theosis. It's deification. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything is oriented toward that. Mm-hmm. Everything is uh, to become by grace what God is by nature. Mm-hmm. You know, to quote the you know the the fathers, mm-hmm. uh, that's the goal. Mm-hmm. And if anything detracts from that, then it's not genuine hmm. in our tradition. It's not it's not organic, and it, and it should be rejected. Hmm. And and that really is a process. You know, and I use pr- the word process in in the best way, not in the, mm-hmm. this crazy modern sense that everything is is process, mm-hmm. but. Uh, but it, but it really is, and we have to submit ourselves again to that. Could you could you go in a little bit more into the concept of deification? Uh, because the last episode we did, um, I brought it up, and I probably butchered the concept of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was again, it may be a little similar uh, thought process to the Byzantine. But I remember talking to a friend of mine who's American Orthodox, where mm-hmm. he was talking about the concept of like because God has become man through the incarnation, therefore mm-hmm. um, man can become more like God, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so obviously, I probably wasn't giving it justice to when he explained it to me and when I talked to him about it. But could you explain mm-hmm. that a little bit more? Because I'd really like to kind of get a better grasp of how that concept works and how that's then related to the liturgy. No, and I, I think that's a, a correct way to express it. We call it the divine exchange. Mm. You know, we give God our humanity. You know, that's our, our gift to God. And the, and the highest gift to God from, from us, the supreme gift of humanity to God was the Theotokos, mm-hmm. was, the, was the mother of God. She is seen as our supreme gift to God. And God accepts that gift, and in exchange, he gives us a greater gift. Mm-hmm. He gives us the gift of his divinity. So that humanity and divinity are united together in a bond uh, that can no longer be separated. We can make a distinction between the two, but we can't separate the two. We're forever united to the Godhead. You know, and wherever the head goes, the body, the body follows. Mm-hmm. The body participates in the life of, of the head. And this is um, so sublime uh, that it, it, it goes beyond human understanding. Mm-hmm. 
how can we be made God? Mm-hmm. Right? You know, how can we be made God? And we think, well, yeah, there's a heretical sense in talking about that. Yeah, uh, but like a Roman another, emperor or something like that. Yeah. yeah, but in another sense, it's it's our supreme calling, hmm. and that's the mystery of of Holy Communion. You know, we we receive uh, what we are, and we receive what we become. Mm-hmm. You know, who are we? We are the the body of Christ, uh, meant to become that in its fullness. We're meant to be converted. Even even Augustine, you know, in the Western tradition, talks about this. You know, the food that we eat, the spiritual food that we eat, we're meant to be converted over into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, really, that's deification is the goal of human life. Mm-hmm. You know, if, it's not so much to go from from earth to heaven as it is to become a certain person, mm-hmm. you know, right. Because right. wherever, wherever Jesus is, there's, there's heaven, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that's where, yeah. that's where heaven is. So for us, uh, it's really a matter of becoming rather than, than going. Interesting. So yes. might you say then that the divine liturgy is in some ways um, a continual expression and a continual extension um, of the logic of the incarnation, then, exactly. Then yes, it's yeah, directly yeah. linked up with this just sublime min, um, mystery. Exactly. Of, yeah, that's so interesting when you think about it in those terms. And we, we see that expressed uh, in the architecture of our church. Mm-hmm. When yeah. you go into a Byzantine church, the first thing that most people notice is that wall of icons. Mm-hmm. You know, they kind of stasis, mm-hmm. and they they kind of see it as okay. Well, this is something that is being used to separate the laity from the clergy, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that's usually the first reaction. I say, no, that's to miss see it. Mm-hmm. It's not, a, mm-hmm. it's not a mm-hmm. disconnector. It's actually a connector. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the altar area that represents heaven. The, the nave of the church represents earth. Mm-hmm. What connects heaven and earth? It's the iconostasis. So that kind of stasis actually represents the incarnation hmm. connects heaven, heaven and earth. Hmm. You know, what is a, what is a saint? A saint is a connection between heaven and earth. Yeah. Yep. So that's why we have saints on that kind of stasis. And if you're looking at it, you see Jesus on the right side, then you see the royal doors mm-hmm. and then you see the Theotokos on the left side. Mm-hmm. On the right side is the second coming. On the left side is the first coming, because the Theotokos is holding the baby Jesus. Mm-hmm. And the doors in the middle is where we are. That's where we receive Holy Communion. Mm-hmm. Right. In, in between the first coming and the second coming, that's where we exist. Mm-hmm. And when we receive Communion there, what happens? Heaven and earth are united in us. Mm-hmm. We receive heaven. At that moment. And where do we receive heaven? Between the first coming and the second coming. Hmm. And that's the incarnation. That's the continuation of the incarnation. That's the that's the church's job right now, uh, is to continue that the incarnation. Mm-hmm. It's continued in our in our very flesh. That is hmm. so beautiful. 
Yeah. yeah. It really reminds really me of, cool. of um, yeah, I remember it was one sermon uh, that you gave at St. Thomas, uh, I think it was like last summer where you talked about, or preached about, I should say, um, the widow's um, son dying. And then Jesus oh, yeah, meets yeah. meets him at the, then he meets the funeral procession at the gateway of the city. Mm-hmm. And I was just sitting there going like, oh my gosh, like everything, like the whole s- structure of everything he's saying just fits so well with mm-hmm. the um, the architecture of the church. I was like, sure, just yeah. like blown away. I was like, at that point, it's like, that makes so much sense um, yeah. of that meeting of heaven and earth together right there at, at yeah. the doors. Well, he has life meeting death. I mean, we're, we're made we're made dead by our sins mm-hmm. and then we we encounter life and that life overcomes the death you know mm-hmm. the, the overcomes that that sin you know it's like when we receive holy communion uh, as long as we're in relationship with god it removes sin mm-hmm. now it doesn't remove mortal sin you know mm-hmm. there's other sac- another sacrament you need for that mm-hmm. but you know venial sin is is removed it's like we, when the light enters in the darkness vanishes yeah it just vanishes. Yep. Hmm. Interesting. So is that, what would you describe then um, as the spirituality of the Byzantine liturgical tradition? Would it generally be that um, deification or would you expand on the uh, spiritual aspect of the Byzantine tradition or would it generally be within that framework as, as we were describing or as you were describing, I should say, as we were discussing? Yeah, the, the, the goal is deification. Uh, our spiritual practices are how, how we get there. Mm-hmm. Now, how are we deified? Well, uh, mercy is going to be a big part of that. As you know from you know attending divine liturgy, most of what the laity say is, Lord, have mercy. Yeah. I, think, I think 80% of the responses are, Lord, have mercy. Mm-hmm. You know, this is only going to be accomplished by God's mercy. You know, we're never going to be good enough to get to heaven. <laughs> yeah. It's just, you know, it's just uh, uh, not possible. We're only going to be saved by, by God's mercy. For us, the, the, the primal or primordial uh, episode in Scripture is that of the Pharisee and, Pharisee and the publican, mm-hmm. the Pharisee and the tax collector, uh, that we have to learn how to pray like the tax collector, in all honesty, in all humility, admitting our sinfulness, admitting our, our weakness before God, mm-hmm. and, and never boasting before God, or never, you know, praying like the Pharisee who prayed thus to himself. <laughs> you know, that's that's not going to get us anywhere. Mm-hmm. Only way we're going to be justified is, is, is through God's mercy. So there's a heavy emphasis on the mercy of God mm-hmm. uh, in the Byzantine tradition, imploring mm-hmm. God for that mercy. Um, also, um, prayer of the heart, you know, um, when a, when a Byzantine or, you know, Orthodox speak about the heart, he's not talking about our emotions today. When we say heart, most people talking about how they're feeling and things like that. That's not what we mean by, by heart. Mm -hmm. What we mean by heart is how the Jews understood heart. Heart is the very core of our person. We are who we are in our heart. And when God goes to find us, uh, he goes to our heart. Our heart reveals our true self. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that our hearts need purification. Right. They need to be purified. Uh, 
they need to be made whole again. And we sometimes understand the word uh, purity in a little bit different sense too. Purity for us is one in being. It's often today associated with things of a sexual nature, and, and that's one manifestation of purity for sure, or impurity. Mm-hmm. But purity is to be made one. Hmm. to be made whole, not to be mixed with anything else. It's funny, if you look at the, the ancient Jewish uh, laws, you know, there's 600 and some laws that talk specifically about not mixing certain things. Yeah. Right. Yep. yeah. You know? Well, God was trying to get his people to understand a very spir- a very important spiritual concept. Mm-hmm. You know? Right. Uh, God doesn't want to be mixed with other things. God wants to be the foundation. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I tell people, uh, God doesn't want to be a part of your life. He wants to be your life. Mm-hmm. And there's a big difference between those two. And it has to do with purity. It has to do with being being made pure. Uh, so matters of the heart are very, very important. And that it's actually the heart that actually needs to tame the mind. Emotions are associated with thoughts. Emotions are just the byproducts of the thoughts that we have, not to get into psychology and things like that. Mm-hmm. But the, the mind has a, has a life of its own. And if it's not controlled, uh, it takes us to, to the wrong place. Mm-hmm. It takes us away from God. So really, uh, the mind has to be subjected to the heart. The language of the heart is silence. The language of the mind is noise. That's why we have this tradition called um, hesychasm, which means stillness. And we see this especially like in the monks of Mount Athos, who are the, the primary practitioners of this. It's a matter of learning how to be still, mm-hmm. learning how to be absolutely still uh, so as to perceive the longings of the heart and the desires of the heart and being in tune with that heart. Mm. Um, because it's the noise, it's the chaos that often takes us away uh, from that that heart, the silence of the heart. Mm-hmm. How does then, um, if we can branch into another uh, liturgical aspect of the Byzantine, mm-hmm. right? Um, how does the Jesus prayer, and I've heard there's an aspect of praying the Jesus prayer with um, a breathing rhythm Mm -hmm. does that factor in with that whole paradigm or is that something separate that i'm describing or am i just completely like no that's the whole thing that's uh that's somewhat at least with the breathing part that's somewhat Mm -hmm. controversial okay okay (laughs) Um, please 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 no no no. some people some Mm -hmm. people fully accept it other people think it it's becoming more like um some of the it's adopting some of the far east practices that's meant to bring into an altered state i see you know and that and that's that's not what we're that's not what we're about we're not Mm -hmm. uh trying to do that we're trying to fulfill what saint paul says by uh praying uh unceasingly Mm -hmm. right and and the the jesus prayer is used primarily for that so it's not really a, a meditative prayer either i see it's just what's most important are the words that we say and if you ever watch a, um, a monk doing his obedience, doing his, his daily project that he's been assigned, as he's doing that, whether it's breaking bread, uh, baking bread or working in a garden or whatever, you'll see him saying that over and over again. Not out loud, but just kind of gently, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Hmm. 
and simply right. saying it. It's one of those type of prayers that's um, that's like a spiral in nature. Mm-hmm. Sometimes Byzantines get criticized for being too repetitive. Mm-hmm. But uh, repetition is um, is a very good formational mm-hmm. device. Like in the Byzantine rite, you hear the same readings, the same gospel year after year after year. We don't have, you know, different cycles and different years, mm-hmm. like in the uh, Roman rite uh, lectionary. Mm-hmm. We hear the same thing over and over again. But what happens from year to year? As we hear the same thing over and over, it's like a spiral. Think of like a screw, and it goes deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. Because we're ultimately dealing with the mystery of God. And the mystery of God doesn't doesn't bottom out. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, right. it only goes deeper in us. So as we say the same prayers over and over again, uh, that mystery goes deeper into our humanity. Hmm. It goes deeper into our heart. And it's something that you can say, but it's... It's difficult to understand until you experience it. Mm-hmm. You know, our, our tradition is very experiential, and I mean that in the best sort of way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you really have to you really have to do it. And we, we can talk about it all day and say, oh, you know, that makes sense. Okay, I can see that. I can understand that. Uh, but until you actually do it, it's, it's very difficult to grasp it. But that idea of spiral is present in so many aspects of of Eastern uh, life, Eastern tradition. Interesting. You go, you just go deeper and deeper and deeper. Hmm. Um, go ahead. Oh, just real quick, I, I wanted to um, go back to what you said about how uh, the the monks of the Eastern traditions, when they are meditating, they're not attempting to reach transcendent like a like a mm-hmm. a different mindset but they're attempting to it, would it be something similar to finding god in the silence so you know like like because you know in the old testament we're taught that you know god moved kind of in the quiet right like he wasn't mm, in the sure, quiet. Yeah, yeah. is that yeah. kind of is that kind of idea that that's where you're going to experience god is in the silence it's not that you're trying to alter your mind to like be, uh, reach uh like some new age, new level, yeah, like yeah, Nirvana or something. Nirvana, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're, but you're attempting to have that experience with, meet, like interacting with God. Yeah, for us, it's it's a matter of encounter, right? It's a, encounter. encounter with the the living God. Even yeah. in our tradition, um, there's a real hesitancy to meditate. Sure. Hmm. Uh, because meditation uses a human faculty that has been. Uh, tremendously affected by sin. Mm. Hmm. And it's very susceptible to uh, Satan and evil powers. Sure. Mm-hmm. And it can bring us down the wrong path so easily if it's not absolutely purified. Hmm. So even uh, if you speak to like uh, an Eastern monk or a starrets, you know, for us, that's like a, like an elder or spiritual leader. Mm-hmm. They will most often caution you away from anything that has to do with uh, mentally imagining anything. Mm. Uh, okay. Yeah. Just because the fear is that um, it's going to be corrupted. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And we're going to get the wrong idea about God. For us, it's a matter of, of accepting the truth as it's been revealed to us, not to, not to play with it, not to try to manipulate it, but yeah. accept it as, it as it has been revealed to us. Mm-hmm. And be very careful about, about trying to investigate it further. Right, right. Yeah. That makes sense. So would this kind of go then into the hesitancy, or not hesitancy, but the, the not having um, Eucharistic adoration in the same way the Latin rite does is because it's within that same framework of that fear of kind of imagining or letting your own, you know, not warped, but um, fallen human nature kind of go off into random different paths? Um, or uh, No, I, I wouldn't say that. It's, okay. that, it, it, it's that it occurs... Um, you know, from our perspective, our Lord said, take, eat. Mm-hmm. And there, there is an adoration during divine liturgy, but mm-hmm. it happens within within liturgy. I see. Right. To take that outside of liturgy and to do it, for us, it's just, in all honesty, it's just, it's just a foreign concept. I see. It doesn't mean it's wrong or anything like mm-hmm. that. Now, mm-hmm. the, the Orthodox will say, oh, you know, the Roman Catholics are, I mean, they're heretics for doing this and all that. And that's not, that's just polemics again. That's yeah. rhetoric. Yeah. Uh, it has more to do with taking something that our Lord said, take and eat, uh-huh. and placing it outside of, uh, outside of the context of liturgy mm-hmm. for an adoration that, uh, you know, and they sometimes see it as a replacement too. I see. You know, interesting. And of course, mm-hmm. the Latin Latin understanding, you know, adoration leads you to a more faithful reception of the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a flowing to and it's a flowing from. Mm-hmm. It's not a replacement for for receiving our, our Lord. Mm-hmm. Right. That right. makes sense. That that makes sense. You got you to be careful when you speak to the Orthodox about these things. <laughs> well, probably, a lot, probably about a lot of things, um, <laughs> to be completely honest. Um, yeah, so I guess kind of like to kind of start wrapping this up a little bit, um, what would a, um, again, kind of using our, our platonic form of Latin Catholic, mm-hmm. um, like, how to describe this? Like, what, not, I want to say gain from... Um, the Eastern Rite, but how would they be better shaped as a Catholic with with knowledge and with an mm-hmm. understanding um, of the Eastern Rite? Like, how would it help their spirituality? Not obviously with still, you know, mm-hmm. being part of the Latin Rite, but how would it help their, their spirituality and maybe even their appreciation uh, for the Latin Rite itself? Like, how mm-hmm. would they, how would that influence um, if you are thinking this ideal term, yeah. like how would you how would you describe it? First of all, I would say uh, reject the idea of trying to uh, say one is better than the other. Okay, they are really complementary. Mm-hmm. They complement one another. Um, and this this is the, we could talk about this for a whole another hour. Mm-hmm. But if if you look at the churches side by side, the Latin Rite and the Byzantine, the Latin Rite is very masculine in its attributes. Mm, it's very logical it's very linear it likes to go outside of itself Mm -hmm. even look at the architecture gothic architecture what does it do it shoots up to heaven it points to heaven it points to something beyond itself yeah just like a man goes outside of himself Mm -hmm. you know yeah Um, but you look at the byzantine right it's more uh feminine huh it's more maternal and you see that even the architecture, we have the rounded domes. Yeah. Right. In a Byzantine church, it's almost like you're being hugged. 
Huh. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, the entire cosmos is contained within that that church. There's no reason to go any other place. Everything that you need is there. Right. It's like it's like the home. Huh. You know. Uh, and we we tend to be more poetic in our expression. Mm-hmm. Sometimes our, our theology, um, you know, will go around the world just to make one point. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, it will say the same things over and over again. Um, and it's just it's more um, it's just more feminine in its nature. Well, what does this mean? And this is really the mark on all creation. All of creation has this has this uh, handprint on it of complementarity because that's what creates communion. Right. If you don't have complementarity, there can be no communion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and communion is what we were what we were made for. So it's stamped on all of creation, all of creation. And we see that even within God's churches. God's church is actually a communion of churches. Mm-hmm. It's not one single church. You know, it's not one single right. Uh, I mean, there are 23 um, individual Catholic churches of many different flavors uh, and, and liturgies. Um, so for a Latin rite, it's to understand that, well, uh, the church is much bigger than your own rite. Mm-hmm. And there's other things. It's just like, you know, a husband can learn from his wife how to be more of a man. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. In, in all honesty, we have to admit that. Yeah, she reveals to us how to be a man, because we don't make sense by ourselves, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. We only make sense in 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 connection with her. She yeah. reveals to us what we are made for. Yeah, uh, and the same with same with her. I mean, this is some of St. John Paul II's theology of the body stuff. Oh, yeah. He, he goes into some of that that kind of thing, but yeah. when you look at the two churches, you know, together. It's like one tradition reveals how the other tradition could be more faithful to its own self. Yeah. Hmm. You know, now it, it take, it'll take a long time to unpack all of that, uh, you know, specific things. You can talk about mystery. You know, you look at the Byzantine tradition, all such, you know, such reverence for mystery. Mystery is all through it. Well, yeah. the, Latin, the Latin rite is, is mystery, too. Mm-hmm. We're simply revealing to you what what you have, what you are. It's a it's a matter of, of whether or not you want to recognize it and accept it. Right. Hmm. We look at the Latin rite, and the Latin rite says, "Hey, we have this great theological tradition. You know, we've we've taken the human mind to its to its uh, uh, extreme. I mean, you look at you know the angelic doctor Thomas mm-hmm. Aquinas, yeah. probably the smartest man ever to live. Mm-hmm. You know." Yeah. Uh, well, we look at that and we say, hey, the intellect is important. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a great gift from, from God. You need to develop that. You can't just call everything mystery and not try to understand some things, too. Yeah. Right, right. You know, there's an intellectual tradition. And we see that in the fathers of the church. But then, you know, after the fathers of the church, the Eastern churches started to lose sight of that a little bit. Interesting. As it went through the centuries. Um but you know, we, we see in we see in the other what we lack. We see in the other what uh, is there maybe in a primordial stage that needs to be developed. Yeah, you know, and whatever whatever we own uh, belongs to you also, and whatever you have belongs to us because we're in communion. 
Mm-hmm. Just like in, like in marriage, everything that I have belongs to my wife. Everything my wife has belongs to me. Even though we're uniquely different from one another, you know, all of that is brought together, you know, by, by our communion. And yeah, that, does that answer it? No, that does very much so. But that was, yeah, that was awesome. Like, yeah. I was not expecting that, but that's great. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I should say I wasn't expecting such a profound answer. <laughs> like, I mean, well, I, I was expecting something good, but just not profi- that profound. <laughs> Peter, you sound like you were about to say something. I was just, uh, I mean, it makes all of the troubles that I think, you know, Thomas and I talk about that we see with the, the Latin rite. Mm-hmm. We look to the East and we think, if only we could be more like them Yeah, in liturgy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in tradition and, you know, community. Mm-hmm. And it's the way that you described it, not so much as a, that's something that we can't obtain because we're not Eastern, but it's, it is a part of the, the Catholic tradition. That's right. That's that we, right. That we can hold, like, and we can learn from the Byzantine yeah. right how to do these things. It's, that's really yeah, awesome. it, 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 it belongs to you. It belongs. Yeah. It's, it's your, you know, it's your birthright as Christ's right. church. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. when it comes down to it, we, you know, we are Christ's church. <laughs> you know, everything that Christ is belongs to, to all of us. Mm-hmm. We develop slightly different traditions. Right. Uh, but, you know, the real heart of the matter, the, the, the foundational, most important things are uh, mutually, mutually owned. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, that's fantastic. That's true. So I guess so. We'll we'll end it with the final question that we yes, have that we've asked for, for all the priests because this is always really it's always an Uh-oh. interesting question to see how because we've asked this to all all three priests or this oh, no. being the third priest of seeing it's really interesting seeing how um, each one of them has has responded to this. Um, but Paul says in in First Corinthians <laughs> that without charity you're I forget exactly is you're a clanging gong or a clashing cymbal. So without charity you're just noise, right? So how does the Byzantine divine liturgy instill charity in you and its participants. Mm-hmm. Um, we see ourselves as the inheritors of St. Basil the Great's understanding of charity. Mm-hmm. And his, his social teachings are at the very heart of our own social teachings. Uh, and it's quite a challenge you know, um, St. Basil the Great, Great taught that everything above our need does not belong to us. It belongs to, to those in need. And when we deprive them of that, uh, it's a great injustice, you know. So what I, what I own above and beyond what I need does not actually belong to me. And when I don't give it to the others, then um, it's theft, St. Basil the Great would even say, if uh, somebody starves to death and you had food above what you needed and you kept it for yourself and this other person died, then you're guilty of murder. Wow. You're guilty of murder. Yeah. You know, much of, much of what we call charity today is not charity. It's it's justice when we because we're just given to others what they already have a right to. If you have a second pair of shoes and you give them to Carm or something like that, that's not charity. That's justice because they already have a right to it. Hmm. Yeah. What is charity? Charity is when you take off your own shoes 
the one pair that you have, and then you give it to another, and you choose to go barefoot while they have shoes. That's charity. Hmm. Yeah. That that's our that's our goal. Now, you know, we 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 fail miserably, of course, but we have that in our mind. Mm-hmm. We always begin with the maximum. And we never begin with the minimums in the Byzantine tradition. We always begin with the maximum, even when it comes to fasting or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and then we mitigate from there. Right, right. We never say, this is the minimum you have to do. Because love does not ask that question. Love asks the question, what more can I do? Love never asks, what is the least I can do? You know, if we're asking, what's the minimum I can do uh, to get by? Then that's that's not love. Mm. I mean, think about, you know, you speak to your wife, you know, do you think about what the, what's the least thing I can do for my wife on her birthday? Right. <laughs> right. Now you think about, you know, what's the, what's the greatest thing, you know, within reason that I can do for her? Yeah. I mean, that's how love expresses itself. So in our social, social teachings and in our, in our charity, that's where we begin. We have that ideal in our mind. That's, that's where we start. And that's what we try to live up to. Do we fail? Yes. But that's where we ask for God's mercy. Mm. You know, and God's mercy brings some of that healing to us to make us uh, better the next time. Hmm. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, certainly. That's how we think. It's like, you know, every time all of our, we have four fasting seasons a year mm-hmm. in the visiting tradition. And every fasting season, uh, we uh, collect food and money for the poor. Mm-hmm. because the food that we forego, the food that we don't eat, uh, we give to the poor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the money that we would spend on that food, we give to the poor. And that's how fasting and almsgiving go together. And it has to be done in the spirit of prayer. Otherwise, it, it makes us uh, resentful. It makes us angry. It makes us mean. Right. So that's how prayer, almsgiving, and uh and fasting all, all go together. So in the Byzantine rite, that's that's how you, that's how we do it. That's how you see it. Hmm. I fast from the food, not so I can save money for myself. Mm-hmm. I fast mm-hmm. from food so I can give that to the poor, so I can give it to the needy. Hmm. I mean, okay, that's yeah. an interesting paradigm shift yeah. all together okay. with it. Interesting. Wow. So, well, I want to thank you so much, Father, uh, for coming Certainly. on. Um, I had blast. Is great. I learned a lot. Thank sure, you. Sure, Peter did as well. Um, Absolutely. Hey, and we finally did. We did lessons in liturgical literacy. Our first podcast series. We got <laughs> we go. got all, got all three. <laughs> we got all three yep. done. So, um, it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed doing it. I enjoyed it. Enjoy it. Yeah. Thank no. you, Peter. Thank you, Thomas. Appreciate oh, it. Thank you so much, Father. And uh, hopefully, we can have you back on and when we get another evening where you're free, which I'm sure so, is my. So, my <laughs> one of my sons kept coming in and here, kept coming in and out. Like, <laughs> 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 yeah, no, this is a great conversation about um, the liturgical tradition. And uh, hopefully, you, dear listener, have, have learned something now about the different liturgical traditions of, of the Catholic Church uh, altogether. So, um, all right, well, we'll end it as we always do, which is pretty simple. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.
yells here and like yells about something about capitalism. Uh, <laughs> or, or one of my kids yells too. I, yeah, exactly. 